I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua, chapter 1, begins, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all these people, under the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites under the great sea going down toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous. That thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, Wheresoever thou goest. Now, these instructions to Joshua, obviously, he's taking over as the leader of the children of Israel for, uh, for Moses. Moses had disobeyed God in one of the uh, uh, methods that God was providing for the people, specifically when the children of Israel had come out of the bondage of Egypt. They made their way into the, uh, to a desert land where there was no water. And the people began to murmur against Moses and against God. And so God told Moses what to do. He told him to go stand upon a certain rock and strike the rock with his rod or his staff. And, uh, and water would come forth from the rock, and it did. And it was uh, a huge amount of water. Obviously, it would have to be a lot to take care of the millions of people and the animals and livestock and whatever else they had with them. But then later, at a different time, they came back into the same situation. And God told Moses to speak to the rock this time. Well, he didn't. He struck it. He was mad at the children of Israel for their rebellion, rebellious attitude and such. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it. And, and apparently that was a big deal for God because God said that that was the cause which Mo, for Moses not being able to take the children of Israel into the promised land. Now God, uh, I'm sorry, Moses messed up God's example. See, the first time he was supposed to strike the rock and that was a symbol or an illustration of Jesus being stricken and smitten of God and afflicted on the cross. But then the second time was supposed to be an example or an illustration of what we do following the resurrection, what we do to draw on and take uh, hold of the things that God has provided for us. Well, how do we do that? Well, the Bible says that that's done through faith. Faith is believing in your heart and speaking with your mouth. So when Moses struck the rock, 
he's taking away God's example for provision, water, everything that we need in life that comes through the operation of faith, which is the word spoken from our hearts. So Joshua's taking over, and you can imagine what a tough act that is to follow. I hate to say it that way, but you understand what I mean, I guess. And so he's going to take Moses' place as the leader of the children of Israel. Now Moses talked to God face to face. Moses went up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, and stayed up there 40 days. And from the foot of the mountain, everybody could see what was going on. There was lightning and fire and smoke and all kinds of things that the people began to say based on what they saw. How could anybody live through that? Well, of course, Moses did live through that. He came down and ministered to the people. And and as a result, Moses was certainly the great man that was able to stand in the presence of God. Now Joshua has to take his place. Well, the Lord told him how to do that. He told him that it comes through the meditation in the word. He told him it comes through a relationship in the word of God, getting the word of God planted in your heart to meditate or to speak the word of God into your own spirit, act on it, and because that is the operation of faith, then things would come to pass just like God said. But notice God told him three times to be strong and courageous. Three times. He must be trying to get a point across. Now, folks, here's what God's saying to, to uh, Joshua. He said specifically, no man will be able to stand, in, uh, stand against you all the days of your life because I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. Well, again, Moses did some pretty phenomenal things at the hands of God. And now Joshua has a, a promise from God that it would be just the same for him. Now, here's the question. If God's going to be with him all the days of his life, if he'll never fail him, never forsake him, then why is there a need? If nobody will be able to stand against him, the, the enemy armies that or military forces would be able to stand up against Moses leading the children of Israel, what's there to be strong and courageous about? I mean, it'd be real easy to conclude if you were in, in Joshua's position. God said he'd be with me. He said he'd do everything that, uh, for me just like he did for Moses. Now, again, remember what some of that was. When the sons of Korah rose up against Moses, you remember how that went? The ground opened up and swallowed all the people and closed back up on top of them. So if you know that God's going to do things like that or anything necessary along those lines to protect you and to keep you and to, uh, to, to help you. Where's the need to be strong and of good courage? Folks, I want to read to you again from verse 9. God said, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. You know what the word afraid means. In the Hebrew, it literally means to have awe or something terrible. The word dismayed, he was supposed to guard against that as well, means to break down or to become confused. So he's telling Joshua, don't be afraid, don't be confused, 
But again, if God's going to be with you all the days of your life, if he's going to take care of you just like he did Moses, if he's going to honor your words just like he did Moses, why the need for courage? Folks, here's what we think when we read and hear of things like this, the promise God made to Joshua. Because he made the same promise to you. He said just as much to you as he said to Joshua, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said to you, just like he said to Joshua, all things are possible. Now, those are not the words that he used in, uh, in the passage that we're reading here, but it means the same thing, doesn't it? He's saying, don't be afraid of anything. Don't be broken down or confused in any respect. He's given us those same promises. So where's the need for strength and courage? Because, folks, since faith is what's in, uh, impossible to please God without Faith is necessary and critical to be pleasing to God. Faith always deals with the unknown. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That means that there are going to be times where we walk with God in our Christian walk, in our fulfilling the things that God has given us to do. There are going to be times where it doesn't look like God's with us. There are going to be times where it looks like we're not going to prevail. There are going to be times where it looks like we're going to lose this one, not win it. Because if everything always looks rosy and like victory and so forth, if it never looked like we weren't going to make it, then how could we operate in faith? You can't put your faith in the things that you see. That's not faith. Faith means you're operating on and acting on something that you can't see. So at the same time, God is telling Joshua, don't worry about the outcome. I'll see to it. He's identifying to him that it won't always look like it's going your way. He's identifying the need for us to believe no matter what it looks like. No matter how it appears. Now I want you to turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30 tells us a story of David. You remember the life of David? The Bible says in uh, Old Testament and New Testament that David was a man after God's own heart. Well, I don't know how you read that or how you interpret that, but if somebody's a man after God's own heart and it gives us examples, pretty clear-cut and detailed examples of things that they did and ways that they operated, it seems to indicate to me that we should follow his example. Wouldn't you think? Well, David's example was that when he was a teenager, probably 15, 16 years old, the prophet Samuel was sent undercover without anybody knowing what was going on, was sent to his house to anoint him to be the next king of Israel. Saul had already disobeyed God. King Saul had already disobeyed God several times. And so God was making plans to replace him. But David didn't become king for another 13 or 14 years. He didn't become king till he was age 30. Now, we don't know exactly how old he was, but we, uh, when he was anointed to be king, when Samuel went to tell him what was going on or what would be. But we assume that he was somewhere in his mid-teen years. And so for these 13, 14, maybe 15 years... David is having to fight for 
his life. King Saul finds out or identifies, understands that the hand of God is upon David to replace him. And so he chases after him for several years. He tries to kill him. David's on the run. He's having to live in in, uh, the land of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And you know there were, had to be plenty of times and plenty of opportunities for him to wonder what is really going on. Why are things going this way? Now, when he first was anointed to be king, that had to be pretty heady as a teenager. There had to be a lot of thoughts and, and considerations in his mind. And I'm sure he was just like the rest of us. We would have figured out if we were in that position, we would have figured out how this thing was supposed to go. We would have imagined what God would do and how it would work. And I doubt very seriously if anywhere in David's imaginations concerning the fulfillment of God's promise, him running for his life and having to live away from home and being chased after by the, the very people that he's supposed to be the ruler of. I doubt that figured into his plans. Would you think? So after running for his life, operating on God's behalf for the the benefit of Israel, fighting against his enemies undercover, he comes to a situation where he faces the greatest crisis of his life. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and spitten Ziklag, the city, and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any of them, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city. Now they come back from a, a, a great battle, a victory that they had won over some of the other enemies of Israel. And they're using the city of Ziklag as a headquarters. And so they come back to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was, was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now we come to a place. David under adverse circumstances. It has supernaturally gathered together an army. And the army was made up of people that were discouraged and people that were disheartened people that were broke, people that had all kinds of problems and and situations of their own. And by the hand of God, David turned them into his mighty men, a military force that probably rivaled any other group you could name. But now here while they're gone, their city, their headquarters city, has been raided and sacked. And all the people, their wives and their sons and their daughters, all the people have been taken captive. And it was such a tragedy that they wept till they had no more power to weep. 
Everybody realizes the seriousness of this. This is probably the most serious situation, circumstance that David has ever faced. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here, a couple of words here in the scripture as it's used. This is in verse 6. It says, and David was greatly distressed. Now, this word distress means to be narrow. It means to be hemmed in. It means to be trapped. So David is facing a situation where he's got no out. What are we going to do about this? He was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Folks, when people are grieving, they do crazy things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. I know in, in a lot of faith circles or, or so-called faith circles, I know that there's a, an idea that we really shouldn't grieve when we lose loved ones. But folks, that's crazy. We do grieve whether we should or not. That's not the point. We do grieve over our losses. Now, when... We just read a moment ago that, that uh, God told Joshua not to be afraid and not to be dismayed. You know as well as I do that emotions rise up within us. God can't be telling Joshua. The, the, the uh, instruction of the scripture cannot be to us that we should not feel. Because emotions come. We can't stop emotions from coming, but we can decide whether or not we're going to act on our emotions. So when the Bible says, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed, it's not saying don't feel anything. It's saying don't act on your feelings. Emotions are wonderful things. I rejoice with those of you that have them. <laughs> but they're a poor guide. And so here are these people, because of their grief, and it's understandable, because of their grief, they feel like they have to lash out against somebody. But you know as well as I do, David's not the enemy. Attacking him's not going to do any good. So he was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people were, was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, Notice this, this phrase, last phrase of verse 6. But David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. Let me read you the definition of this word encouraged. It means to fasten upon or to seize upon. It means to be strong. It means to strengthen, cure, help, repair, fortify, to bind, to restrain, or to conquer. That's a pretty important word. So when it says David encouraged himself in the Lord, it means he had to seize upon something other than what he could see that was going on around him. He had to take hold of something other than what he felt. Not only is he facing the situation, the same situation that everybody else is, his wives and daughters have been taken too. But now he's facing the wrath of the people who somehow have concluded that, that stoning David would be the way to go here. I wonder what he seized upon. 
I wonder what he did to encourage himself in the Lord. Folks, there'd be only one answer that would make sense. And that is he remembered what God had told him from the beginning. He remembered how things used to be. I'm sure he remembered back to when he was a shepherd. And just as he had told King Saul before he went out against Goliath, how that the lion and the bear came to destroy the flocks that he was in charge of. But God delivered him from the lion. God delivered him from the bear. I'm sure he remembers when he went out against Goliath. How he was willing to do what the military experts, the great soldiers weren't willing to do. He was willing to go against a giant. Against what would appear to be impossible odds. He encouraged himself. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to read a little bit of the story of Goliath, David and Goliath. We want to come back to this situation in 1 Samuel chapter 30. But let's just read a little bit about the story of David and Goliath. I'll start in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17. And there went out a champion of all the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. We don't know exactly what these measurements were, but he must have been nine or ten feet tall. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. Again, we don't know exactly how much that is, but it must be something for him to be given us the detail. He had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. I guess that's supposed to tell us that, that an ordinary man wouldn't be able to, to handle that kind of weight or those types of weapons. But he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? I choose, now choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants but I, I prevail against him and kill him. Then shall you be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Then it tells us about David coming to his brothers and bringing provisions for his brothers. We'll skip down to verse 23. As he talked with them, meaning talked to his brothers, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free. You know one of my favorite parts of this story? It's what David does when he finds out the reward. Verse 26, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and that taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth them. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's answer, anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? What are you doing here? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. You just came because you wanted to see blood. Now, folks, let me point something out to you. When you stand in faith, when you take hold of one of the promises of God, any promise of God, the people around you that know that that's what you're doing are going to do everything they can to stop you. Because you make them look bad. You show up there unwillingness to take God at his word any of you ever found that to be true it's true in every case that's one reason why the Bible gives us great information or great advice and says hast thou faith have it to yourself and to God you make a mistake telling other people what you're believing for if somebody can't be a part of the answer then what do you need to tell them what the situation is? And most people aren't willing to be a part of the answer unless it's something, somebody that understands what you understand about the truth of the word and are willing to agree with you. You'll always find other people trying to discourage you from believing for the answer that you seek from God. Always. And that's what David's brother does. David's brother first tries to put him down by being a lowly shepherd boy. But we know that there was more to him being a shepherd than just taking care of a few sheep. It was a training ground to learn how to defeat lions and bears. And so after his brother tries to put him down, <clears throat> David responds in verse 29 and said, what have I done? Is there not a cause? In other words, he's saying, what are you doing about this big guy on the other side? And, of course, the answer to that was nothing. He's running away just like everybody else is. So David turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner, and the people answered him again after the former manner. <clears throat> what that means is David turned and kept asking people, what's the reward for getting rid of this guy? David spends as much time asking people what the reward is than any other part of this story. Now, folks, do you remember Hebrews eleven six? 6? <clears throat> but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. <clears throat> if you're seeking a reward from God, people that don't understand the word, people that don't have a relationship with God that amounts to believing in the unseen things that God's word promises. They think that believing for a reward is a sign of arrogance. <clears throat> One of the greatest criticisms, those of us that believe God's word and stand upon God's word and act upon God's word receive is that we are treating God like a giant slot machine in the sky. It's all about what we're going to get. 
But folks, if you can't believe that God will reward you for diligently seeking him, you can't be pleasing to God. See, it's just as important to believe that God will reward you for diligently seeking him as it is to believe that he is who the Bible says he is. Both are necessary ingredients. Both are two legs of the faith that pleases God. And so David makes no mistake. He makes no small thing out of this. He says, wait a minute, what's the reward? He hadn't even said he's going to do anything yet. But he asked a number of people, what's the reward here? And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul and he sent for them. Now he knows who David is. In the 16th chapter, after David is anointed to be the next king, he winds up being a help and an aid to Saul, who's greatly troubled and distressed because of his disobedience to God. So he knows who this kid is. He's seen that the hand of God is upon him. He's, he already knows his character. So when somebody starts coming to Saul saying, hey, there's a guy here that's asking about the reward. I'm sure Saul probably got excited until he found out that it was this teenage kid <laughs> who wasn't especially big himself, had no military training. But David comes before Saul and says, let no man's heart fail because of him. I will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, folks, if he ascribes to, the, to Goliath's terms, that means the whole of the nation of Israel's future is in balance here, in the balance. Because if David fights, he fights for Israel. It determines whether or not they're going to be conquered by the Philistines or not. Saul says to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but just a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. He's been fighting longer than you're alive. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Can I ask you something? When David is standing before Saul with the confidence that he has because of the victory that he's gained over a lion and over a bear. Now, now, I don't know too much about Goliath or the Philistine armies or things like that, but if I had to choose between facing Goliath, a lion, or a bear, I think I'm going to pick Goliath. I mean, maybe I could cut his legs out from under him some way or another, <laughs> run around his legs while he's trying to figure out what to do with me. Lying in a bear, there's no contest. But because of the victories that David has won, and these are not victories that anybody knows about. If they were known, Eliab probably would have said to him, you know, if you were anybody else, I'd think you're just here looking for bloodshed. But you're the one that killed the lion. You're the one that killed the bear. 
Maybe there is something to you. But these were not victories that were known. These were things that were done privately when he was isolated from all the people. David gained his confidence in God when he was by himself out in the field. So Saul says, you can't do this. You're too young. Now Saul's not willing to do it himself, and he's a head taller than everybody else, or at least that's what it says of him when he was anointed to be king. Saul's one of the biggest guys around, and he's not willing to do anything. So David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And, David, and Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. That's easy to say, isn't it, folks? <laughs> be blessed. The Lord be with you. As you go stick your hand in the middle of the, the fight. I'll watch from here. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head, and he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go. He tried to see if this would work, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I can't go with these. I don't know how to work this stuff. And David took them off. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near unto the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The devil will always try to tell you you're not up for the fight. You can't do this, whatever it is. Whether it's something as simple as believing for healing or believing for God to meet your needs, which the Bible says definitively, absolutely, those things were paid for by the blood of Jesus that was shed at the cross. Or whether it's something that, you're, that, has, uh, uh, that pertains to your future, the plan of God for your life. The devil will always tell you you're no match for him. Notice how David responds. David, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine. Now think about the things that David has said so far. Basically what David has said so far is, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And what's the reward for doing away with him? He said to Saul, the Lord that delivered me from the paw of the bear and the, the mouth of the lion, he'll deliver me from this too. Now David's going to talk to his enemy. And notice how he does it. David said to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou has defied this day will the Lord deliver you into my hand and I will smite you and I will take your head from you and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air 
and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose, he must have been sitting down when he saw David was the one coming after him. He must have sat down. But now the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Folks, he's the only one that's running in the direction toward the enemy. Every other time when Goliath has come out and made his threats, everybody has run away. But David ran toward him. He ran toward him. I wonder if he's remembering any of this stuff in chapter 30. When Ziklag was burned and all the captives, the wives and the daughters were taken captives. I wonder if he's remembered how God has delivered him before. You know the end of the story of Goliath. He takes one of those five smooth stones. He puts it in a sling, throws it at Goliath's head, and it sinks into his head, and he falls dead. Then David has to run up and take Goliath's sword, since he doesn't have one of his own. Remember what he said. He said, I'll take your head off. So he cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword. There was a great battle, a great victory that day because when Israel saw what David had done and saw that Goliath was dead, all of Israel joined in the fight and they chased the Philistines until they destroyed them all. Now, folks, when somebody sees you win your battle, it gives them courage to win one of their own. That's why the Bible tries, to, that's why the devil tries to discourage you from acting on and standing on the word. Because your victory is not just for you. Your victory will inspire others. Now, let's go back to chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. David encourages himself in the Lord. Again, let me read verse 6. David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Do you remember, without us having to turn over to it, do you remember in James chapter 1 where it talks about Counting it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When you come against tests, trials, troubles, afflictions. When you're in hard places in life, count it all joy. Well, we have to count it joy because it's not joy. We have to act as if we are joyful because the emotions we feel are anything but joy and joyful. But here's one way that the Bible instructs us to cause things to be as God said. And that is we've got to act like it's already done. Abraham's example of faith was that he believed he was the father of nations before he had a child. He acted like he called himself what God said of him, which is father of a multitude. The reality is our emotions follow our actions. That's why the devil wants to reverse that. 
The devil wants you to act based on your emotions. But the way God made us and the way we exercise authority here in this earth is to act and then the emotions will follow. When the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 came in the press behind and touched Jesus' garment, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. After she acted on what she believed and touched Jesus' garment, then she felt in her body that she was healed of the plague. See, a lot of people are waiting to feel something first before they acknowledge it or act on it. And that's not the way faith works. Faith works by acting on what God's Word says because we believe it to be true, no matter how we feel. No matter how we feel. Well, back to James chapter 1 that we started referring to. Count it all joy when you fall into the diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, if we'll stand in faith, counting it joy because God's word says the victory is already ours, then victory will come. But the hard part is in the time where we feel differently, where it doesn't look like it's working for us, when we don't see victory in front of us, and all we have to rely on is the truth of God's word. Now, James told, him what, told us what to do then, too. He said, if any of you lack wisdom. Now, the wisdom he's talking about is in relation to the hard place. So he's got to be talking about if you need wisdom to know what to do in the middle of your trouble. See, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 that Christ has made unto us wisdom. So here he's got to be talking about a specific type of wisdom or specific to the circumstance. So it says, if any of you like wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. You've got to believe that God will tell you what to do when you don't know what to do. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. He said, let not that man think he'll receive anything from God. So faith is the means whereby we receive anything or everything from God. As the scripture says. 1 Samuel chapter 30 is David asking for wisdom. He's just as grieved as everybody else. His losses are just as great as everybody else's. The only problem is now he has to withstand the pressure of, uh, that, the, that his own men are bringing against him. So David did first the thing that we should always do. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Remember that word means to seize or take hold of something. It means to conquer it. So David, in conquering his circumstance, went back to what God had told him before. Folks, whenever you're in a situation of difficulty or hardship, always go back to what you know. Not what you think. The devil wants to occupy you in what he wants you to think about. But victory is in going back to what you know. What do we know? Well, no matter what the circumstance is that we're facing, we know that he promised never to leave us or forsake us. And God used that in Joshua chapter 1, we read a little bit ago. God used that as the, the summary for being with Joshua just like he was with Moses. 
That's what it means when God said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. It means he'll be with us just like he was with all the champions of the old covenant. He will provide for us just like he's provided in every situation we have examples of that the scripture tells us about. He'll be with us like he was the three Hebrew children that were thrown into the fiery furnace. He'll be with us just like he was with Daniel when he was thrown in the lion's den. That's what I'll never leave you nor forsake you me. So David in asking for wisdom did first and foremost the work of encouraging himself, seizing, taking hold of his courage so that he could conquer the circumstance. Then it says, verse 7, David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now there's two steps here to what David did when he was in the middle of a uh, hardship, when he was seeking for wisdom. The first step is oftentimes ignored. The second step is usually what everybody else thinks is the only way to go. But David didn't just entreat the Lord. He didn't just inquire of the Lord, what do I do? He first encouraged himself in the Lord, and then he asked. Now, folks, this is a, a principle that the Bible shows us time after time after time. And that principle is, before we go to prayer, or the first part of our prayer, should be t reminding ourselves of how big God is. You remember when, uh, in Acts chapter 4, when um, uh, Peter and John were taken captive by the religious leaders for healing the man at the beautiful gate, they threatened them and commanded them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And then it says they went to their own company. And they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when the people had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and talked about how big God is. They talked about God's power. They talked about God's plan and God's purpose. And then later on in their prayer, they said, now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Most everybody I know would run to God the first hint of being threatened and talk about the threats. But they didn't talk about the threats. They didn't even mention the threats until after they had talked about how, God, how big God is. They didn't even consider the threats or bring the threats up before God until after they told him of the trust that they placed in him. Second Chronicles chapter 20, when Jehoshaphat was facing five enemy armies, he proclaimed a fast. And when he prayed, he talked about how big God is. He said, started off his prayer by saying, are you not God in the earth and in the heavens? Have you not said that when we entreat you or when we inquire of you in this temple which holds your name, you would answer us? Have you not told us that you would deliver us from all of our enemies? These people that are coming against us are the ones you wouldn't let us fight when we first came into the promised land. Now look how they come to reward us. In times past, folks, people talked about praying down at your problems. Here's what that means. The Bible says that we've been raised with Christ Jesus and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. Now, obviously, that's talking about a position. We're not literally there. We're literally here. 
But because we were raised when Jesus was raised, we were seated when Jesus was seated. And the Bible is real clear about this. The Bible talks about, in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, it talks specifically about the fact that we are with Christ wherever he is. Because we are in Christ, when he's seated at the right hand of God, so are we. Far above all principality and power and every might and dominion that is named in this world. It's talking about all things being under our feet. Well, if all things are under your feet, then your prayer should be down at the problem, not underneath the problem trying to get out from under it. That's what magnifying God before you ask for anything does. It reminds us and it testifies before God that we are his children of faith. God told Joshua, every place the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. Where do we walk? Or how do we walk? The Bible says we walk by faith. So that means every place that your faith touches shall be yours. Because that's our walk. That's the way we appropriate the things of God. Time after time after time, folks. The Bible gives us example after example of when we magnify him to begin with, we're magnifying him and his power as greater than the problem that we're facing. And getting the answers from the place at God's right hand is a whole lot easier than getting the answers from underneath the problem we think is so big. So here's what seeking wisdom looks like. Thank God David knew. He encouraged himself in the Lord and then asked God, what do I do next? He's not asking, what do I do because I'm so weak and lowly. He's saying, what does your ne Israel's next king do in this situation? Well, the Bible tells us that he took 600 men. I believe it was 600 men. And he went after the Amalekites. He came to the place where they were and he recovered everything that was taken. There was not one person killed. Nobody lost their wife. Nobody lost a son. Nobody lost a daughter. And they took the spoil, not only recovered the things that they had taken from Ziklag, but they took the spoil of these armies. And it was a massive, massive victory. One of the things I like about this story is it's the last thing the Bible tells us happened before David did become the king of Israel. He becomes king within a matter of a week. Probably less than that. Probably three or four days. But certainly within the next week, David becomes king of all of Israel. Folks, you have to realize there comes a point where the devil has taken his last shot. He is not infinite in his ability to attack he's not infinite in his ability to cause trouble in your life there comes a point where he takes his last shot and this was it now when did David figure out it was it when did David figure out this was the devil's last attack only in, after he was made king of Israel there's nothing to indicate that he knew that this was the last thing but it was the greatest thing that he ever faced it was the greatest test it was the greatest trial that he had ever faced when it looks like the devil's pulled out all of his stops 
He's thrown everything at you that you've ever experienced. It just might mean this is his last attempt. How many people would have given up right here in 1 Samuel chapter 30? It had been real easy for David to slip out in the darkness and just run away from these guys that are threatening to kill him. I wonder how many things when we get to heaven and see things as they really are. I wonder how many times we're going to see that people gave up just before their answer came. Now, I would assume that you think the same thing I do about this, and that is I never want to be somebody that quit. I never want to be somebody that gave up just before the answer came. Well, there's only one way that ensures that, and that is if you never quit. There's only one way you can be guaranteed that that doesn't include you, is no matter what the devil does, never, ever quit. So whatever you're facing, God's bigger. Whatever you're facing, there's an eternal promise that covers it. Whatever you're facing, whatever circumstances, whatever delay in time. And it seems to me those are the two things that the devil focuses on to try to make us quit. And that is time, meaning delay. Things take longer than what we think they do or what we want them to. And then secondly, pressure under the circumstance. You learn to fight against those two things. You learn to stand against those two things. You learn to not be defeated by those two things. The devil's got nothing else to attack you with. The devil stops being a problem in your life. So encourage yourself in the Lord. Whatever he's told you is still good. Whatever he put in your heart, I don't care how long ago it was, It's still just as fresh as the day that he said it. It's still just as real. It's still just as true. Our job is to never, ever quit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you, Father, for the promises that you've made to us. We thank you that there's nothing the devil can do to overcome the word when we stand upon it in faith. Father, you are God. There's nothing that's impossible with you. You have shown us time after time after time that you are willing to change even the laws of physical nature to help and to aid your children. So we thank you, Father, whatever is necessary to be done to ensure our victory, we count it as done. We thank you, Father, that no matter what attacks the enemy brings, we thank you that the shield of faith quenches all of them. We thank you, Father, that since you're on our side, we cannot fail. We thank you that because you're our victory, we cannot be defeated. We thank you, Father, that because you are God and you never leave us nor forsake us, we thank you that the victory is ours. And everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Say it with me. The Lord is good. good. And his mercy endures forever. forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a, a great time at the movie and come on back and be with us tonight if you can.